two boys, one in Afghanistan, one in Tennessee, play games in an attempt to change reality. This week on Selected Shorts, two tales from the best American short stories of 2021, with guest editor Jesmyn Ward. Stay with us. I'm Jane Kaczmarek, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. If you're a TV watcher, you probably know me from series such as Malcolm in the Middle. Or if you're a theatergoer, maybe you saw me in Long Day's Journey Into Night with Alfred Molina, or in Summers at the Williamstown Theater Festival. But some of you dedicated public radio people know me from selected shorts. I'm a regular, both as a performer and as a host. I'm grateful for Selected Shorts' annual collaboration with Mariner Books' Best American Short Stories series. Even if that anthology is patiently waiting for me unread, I can get a serious taste of the year's best here on Selected Shorts. And that's just what we'll do. Explore the 2021 edition of Best American Short Stories with the anthology's editors. If you're a regular listener of this show... You know that we do a Best American Show every year. And we've worked with steadfast series editor Heidi Pitlor since she began working on the anthology in 2007. This year, the Bass guest editor was Jesmyn Ward, the award-winning writer behind beautiful and heartbreaking titles including Men We Reaped, Salvage the Bones, and Sing, Unburied, Sing. To give you a sense of the diverse, fun, and affecting collection that Pitlor and Ward assembled, will present two representative stories. Both involve adolescents facing displacement or rejection, but the stories are set in very different environments. One takes place in a surreal Soviet-occupied Afghanistan, and one inside a junior high school in Tennessee. Here is Jasmine Ward talking about how she chose stories for this year's collection. I realized that I liked fiction that was from the viewpoint or that included the viewpoint of voices and stories that I hadn't encountered before, right? I was continuously drawn to writers who were telling stories from and through characters who have historically been invisible, I think, who are often flat in canon, right? So here I'm thinking about enemy combatants. I'm thinking about the hired help. I'm thinking about you know, all the people in fiction who have been relegated to the villain, right, to the inscrutable other. So I was particularly drawn to stories that were told from that perspective. Often the voices of those characters in those stories, they were singular, they were unique, they just came alive on the page, and they were so beautifully and heartbreakingly rendered. That was Jasmine Ward on this year's edition of The Best American Short Stories. And now, on to the stories. The first piece is by writer Jamil Jan Kochai. Kochai is the author of the novel 99 Nights in Logar, which is set in his ancestral home of Logar, Afghanistan, though he was born in a refugee camp in Pakistan. That book earned him a place as a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award for a debut novel, Originally published in The New Yorker, this story is called Playing Metal Gear Solid V, 
the Phantom Pain. If you're a gamer, you probably recognize the name of this very real, very popular video game in the title. But you'll never guess how our protagonist, a young Afghan, chooses to engage the game. The story is read by a versatile actor who has appeared in series including Veep, Homeland, and Blue Bloods. Here is Leo Solomon. First, you have to gather the cash to pre-order the game at the local GameStop where your cousin works. And even though he hooks it up with the employee discount, the game is still a bit out of your price range because you've been using your Taco Bell paychecks to help your pops, who's been out of work since you were 10 and who makes you feel unbearably guilty about spending money on useless hobbies while kids in Kabul or destroying their bodies to build compounds for white businessmen and warlords. But shit, <laughs> it's Kojima, it's Metal Gear. So after scrimping and saving like literal dimes you're picking up off the street, you've got the cash, which you uh, give to your cousin who purchases the game on your behalf. And then on the day it's released, you just have to find a way to get to the store. But because your oldest brother has taken the Civic to Sac State, you're hauling your 260-pound ass on a bicycle you haven't touched since middle school. And thank Allah, if he's up there, that the bike is still rideable because you're sure there will be a line if you don't get to the GameStop early enough. So huffing and puffing, you're regretting all the Taco Bell you have eaten over the past two years. <laughs> But you write with such fervor that you end up being only third in line. And it's your cousin himself who hands you the game in a brown paperback. Not as if it were something illegal or illicit, which isn't, of course. It's Metal Gear. It's Kojima. It's the final game in a series so fundamentally a part of your childhood that often, when you hear the Irish Gaelic chorus from The Best Is Yet To Come, you cannot help weeping softly into your keyboard. For some reason, riding back home is easier. You leave the bike behind the trash cans at the side of the house and hop the wooden fence into the backyard. And if the door to the garage is open, you slip in. And if it's not, which isn't, you've got to take a chance at the screen door and the backyard. But lo and behold, your father is ankle deep and the dirt hunched over, yanking at weeds with his bare hands, the way he used to as a farmer in Logar. Before war and famine forced him to flee to the western coast of the American Empire, where he labored for many years until it broke his body for good. And even though his doctor has forbidden him to work in the yard, owing it to the torn nerves in his neck and spine, which you know from your mother were first damaged when he was tortured by Russians shortly after the murder of his younger brother, Watak, during the Soviet war. He's out here clawing at the earth and its spoils as if he was digging for a treasure or his own grave. Spotting you only four feet away from the sliding glass door, he gestures for you to come over. And though you are tired, sweaty, and your feet aching, and the most important game of the decade hidden inside your underwear, you approach him he signals for you to crouch down beside him. 
Then he runs his dirty fingers through his hair until flakes of his scalp fall onto his shoulders and his beard. This isn't good. When your father runs his hands through his hair, it is because he has forgotten his terrible flaking dandruff, which he forgets only during times of severe emotional or physical distress, which means that he's about to tell you a story that is either upsetting or horrifying or both, which isn't fair because you're a son, you're not a therapist. Your father is a dark, sturdy man. And so unlike you that as a child, you were sure that one day Hagrid would come to your door and inform you of your status as a mudblood. <laughs> and then your true life, the life without the weight of your father's history, pain, guilt, hopelessness, helplessness, judgment, and shame would begin. Your father asks you where you were, the library. You have to study. You tell him you do, which isn't technically a lie. All right, he says in English, because he has given up speaking to you in Pashto. But after you finish, come back down. I have something I need to talk to you about. Hurry. When you get to your room, you lock the door and turn up MF Doom on your portable speaker to ward off mothers, fathers, grandmothers, sisters, brothers who want to harp on you about prayer, the Quran, Pashto, Farsi, a new job, new classes, exercise, basketball, jogging, talking, guests, chores, homework help, bathroom help, family time, time, because usually mad villainy does the trick. Open the brown paperback and toss the cush your cousin has stashed with the game because he needs a new smoking buddy since his best friend gave up the ganja for God again, and he sees you as a prime target, probably because he thinks you've got nothing better to do with your time, or you're not as religious as your brothers, or you're desperate to escape the unrelenting nature of corporeal existence, and goddamn, the physical map of Afghanistan that comes with the game is fucking beautiful. Not that you're a patriot or a nationalist or one of those Afghans who walk around in a pakol and a kameez and play the tabla and claim that their favorite singer is Ahmad Zoyer, but the fact that 1980s Afghanistan is the final setting of the most legendary and artistically significant gaming franchise in the history of time made you all the more excited to get your hands on it. Especially since you've been shooting at Afghans in your other games. Call of Duty, or Battlefield and Splinter Cell for so long that you've become oddly immune to the self-loathing you felt when you were first massacring wave after wave of militant fighters who looked just like your father. Now, finally, you start the game. After you escape from the hospital where Big Boss was recovering from the explosion he barely survived in the prequel to The Phantom Pain, you and Revolver Osla travel to the brutal scenes of northern Kabul province. Its rocky cliffs, its dirt roads, its sunlight bleeding off into the dark mountains, just the way you remember from all those years ago when you visited Kabul as a child. And although your initial mission is to locate and extract Kazahira Miller, the Phantom Pain is the first Metal Gear Solid game to be set in a radically open world environment. And you decide to postpone the rescue of Kazuhira Miller 
until after you get some Soviet blood in your hands, a feat you accomplish promptly by locating and massacring an entire base of Russian combatants. Your father, you know, didn't kill a single Russian during his years as Mujahideen and Logar. But there's something in the act of slaughtering these Soviet MPCs that make you feel connected to him and his history of warfare. Thinking of your father in a small village, you head south to explore the outer limits of the open world in the Phantom Pain, crossing trails and deserts and mountains, occasionally stopping at checkpoints or military barracks to slaughter more Russians, and you find yourself incredibly skirting the city of Kabul, still dominated by the Soviets, and continuing on to Logar, to Mohammad Agha. And when you get to Wakhjan, the roadside market that abuts the Kabul Logar Highway, just the way you remember it, you hitch your horse and you begin to sneak along the clay compounds and the shops, climbing walls and crawling atop roofs. And whenever a local Afghan spots you, you knock him out with a tranquilizer until you make it to the bridge that leads to the inner corridors of your parents' home village, Nawikhala, which looks so much like the photos and your own blurred memories from the trip when you were a kid that you begin to become uneasy, not yet afraid, but as if consumed by an overwhelming sense of deja vu. Sneaking along the dirt roads past the golden fields and the apple orchards and the mazes of clay compounds, you come upon a house where your father used to reside. And it is there on the road in front of your father's home that you spot Watak your father's 16-year-old brother, whom you recognize only because his picture, unsmiling, head shaved, handsome, and 16 forever, hangs on the wall of the room in your home where your parents pray, but here he is in your game. And you press pause and you sit down the controller. And now you are afraid. Sweat is running down your legs in rivulets and streams. Your heart is thumping. And you are wondering if sniffing that cush you did earlier has got you high. You look out the window and you see your brother walking towards the house and it's dark and you realize that you've been playing for far too long. You're blinking too much. You notice that your room is a mess and that it smells like ass and that you've become so accustomed to its smell and its mess that from the space inside your head, behind your eyes, the space in which your first POV is rooted, you ignore the knock. It's just your little sister and you just get back to the game. There's a bearded, heavy-set man besides Watak, who you soon realize is your father. You pause the game again and you put down the controller. Doom spits. His life is like a folklore legend. Why are you so stiff? You need to smoke more, brethren, instead of trying to riff with the Bork War veteran. Seems to you a sign. You extract the kush from behind the trash, and because you have no matches or lighter, you put hunks of it in your mouth. And you chew and nearly vomit twice. Return to the game. Hiding in your grandfather's mulberry tree, you listen to your father and his brother discuss what they will eat for suhoor, thereby indicating that it is still Ramadan, that this is just days before Watak's murder. Then it hits you. Here's what you're going to do. 
before your father is tortured and his brother murdered, you are going to tranquilize them both, and you are going to carry them on your horse and cross the Logar terrains until you reach a safe spot where you can call the helicopter and fly them back to your offshore platform, mother base. But just as you load your tranquilizers, your brother is banging on the door and demands that you come out. And after you ignore him for a bit, which only makes him madder and louder, you shout that you are sick. But the voice that comes out of your mouth is not your own. It is the voice of a faraway man imitating your voice, and your brother can tell. He leaves, and you return to the game. From the cover of the mulberry tree, you aim your tranquilizer gun, but you forget that you've got the laser scope activated, and Watak sees the red light flashing on your father's forehead, and they're off running and firing at your tree with rifles that they have hidden underneath their patoos, and you are struck twice, so you need a few moments to recover your health. And by the time you do, they're gone. Your brother is back. And this time, he has brought along your oldest brother, who somehow is able to shout louder and bang harder than your second oldest brother. And they're both asking what you're doing and why you won't come out and why you won't grow up and why you insist on wearing your mother and your father, who you know gets those terrible migraines triggered by stress. And now your oldest brother is banging so hard you're afraid that the door will come off its hinges. So you lug your dresser in front of it as if a barricade and then you go back to the spot in front of the TV and you sit on the floor and you press play. At night, under cover of darkness, you sneak towards your father's compound, and you scale the 15-foot high walls of clay and crawl along the rooftops until you get to the highest point in the compound where your father stands, on the lookout for incoming jets and firebombs. And you shoot him twice in the back with tranquilizers. And as he is falling, you catch him in your arms, your father who at the time is around the same age that you are, and in the dark, on the roof of the compound that he will lose to this war, you hold him, his body strong and well, his heart unbroken, and you sit him down gently on the clay so that the sky does not swallow him. Climbing down to the courtyard, you go from chamber to chamber, spotting uncles, aunts, and cousins you've never met in real life, and you find Watak near the cow's shed, sleeping just behind the doorway of a room filled with women as if to protect them. And after you aim your tranquilizer gun and send Watak into a deeper sleep, your grandmother, who is a lifelong insomniac, rises from her toshak and strikes you in the shoulder with a machete and calls for the men in the house, of whom there are plenty, to Awaken and slaughter the Russians who has come to kill us all in our sleep. The damage from the machete is significant. Nonetheless, you still have the strength to tranquilize your grandmother, pick up Watak, and climb onto the roof while your uncles and cousins, and even your grandfather, are awakened and armed, and they begin to fire at your legs as you hustle along, bleeding and weary, to the spot where your father rests. With your uncle on one shoulder and your father on the other, you leap off the roof into the shadows of the apple orchard. The men are pouring out onto the roads and the fields, calling upon neighbors, allies, and because the orchard is soon surrounded on all sides, it seems certain that you will be captured. But you are saved, of all things, 
a squadron of Spetsnaz, who began to fire at the villagers, and in the confusion of the shootout, as the entire village is lit up by a hundred gunfights, each fight a microcosm of a larger battles and wars and global conflicts strung together by the invisible wires of the beloved men who will die peacefully in their sleep. You make your way out of the orchard, passing trails and streams and rivers and mulberry trees until you reach the horse and you ride out of Wachjon toward an extraction point and the nearby Black Mountains. By now, at the door, is your father. Zoya, he is saying very gently, the way he used to say it when you were a kid, when you were in Logar, when you got the flu, when the pills and the IV and the home remedies weren't working, when there was nothing to do but wait for the aching to ebb, and your father was there, maybe in the orchard, maybe on the veranda, and he was holding you in his lap, running his fingers through your hair and saying your name the way he is saying it now, as if it were almost a question. Zoya, he says, and when you do not reply, nothing else. Keep going. Russians chase you on the ground and in the air. They fire and you are struck once, twice, three or four times. And there are so many Russians, but your horse is quick and nimble and manages the terrain better than their trucks can. And you make it to the extraction point in a hollow of the Black Mountains with enough time to summon the helicopter and to set up a parameter of mines. And you hide your father and his brother at the mouth of the cave behind a large boulder, the shape of a believer in prostration where you lie prone with a sniper rifle and begin to pick off Russian paratroopers in the distance. And you fire at the engines of the trucks and you ignore the tanks, which will reach you last. And it is mere moments before your helicopter will arrive. And just as you think you are going to make it, your horse is slaughtered in a flurry of gunfire. And your pilot is struck by a single bullet from a lone rifleman and the helicopter falls onto the earth and bursts into flames, killing many Russians and giving you just enough time to rush into the cave, into the heart of the Black Mountains. With your father on one shoulder and your uncle on the other, and with the lights of the Soviet gunfire dying away at the outer edges of your vision, you trudge deeper into the darkness of the cave. And though you cannot be sure that your father and his brother are still alive, that they haven't been shot in the chaos, that they are not now corpses. You feel compelled to keep moving into the darkness so complete that your reflection becomes visible on the screen of the television right there in front of you. And it is as if the figures in the image were journeying inside you, delving into your flesh to be saved. That was Leo Solomon performing Jamil Jan Kochai's story, playing Metal Gear Solid V, The Phantom Pain. I'm Jane Kaczmarek. When we return, long lunches with the biology teacher and a card game that just might predict your demise. You're listening to Selected Shorts. 
recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. Each week, our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Jane Kaczmarek. On this show, we're celebrating the Best American Short Stories Anthology for 2021. And we're ready to bring you our final story, Biology, by Kevin Wilson. Wilson is the author of smart, quirky novels, including The Family Fang and nothing to see here, as well as story collections tunneling to the center of the earth, and baby, you're gonna be mine. Our previous story featured a young man estranged from his surroundings, and that theme carries on in our second piece, too. It's a funny take on an uncomfortable time, featuring friendship, heartache, and a little game involving something called death cards. You'll see. Performing the story is Mike Doyle, an actor known for work on series including Law and Order, SVU, New Amsterdam, and City on a Hill. This is Biology by Kevin Wilson. Last night, someone from my hometown posted on Facebook to say that our eighth grade biology teacher, Mr. Reynolds, had died. There was a link to the local funeral home's memorial page where I stared at a picture of Mr. Reynolds as I remembered him 25 years previous. His thick, black-rimmed glasses and buzz cut, his hair so blonde it looked white. He had gray eyes. His face was always red, not like a rash, but like a tint to his skin. My boyfriend asked me why I was crying, though he didn't look up from his book. I was someone who cried a lot over the slightest things. But what was strange was that I didn't realize that I had been crying. Once I noticed it, I thought more about Mr. Reynolds. His first name was Franklin, and there was a time when I would call him by that name. And I cried, and I cried, and finally Bobby said, Oh God, what's wrong? What is going on, Patrick? And he held me, and I put down the tablet, and I didn't say a word because I didn't know what to say. Because nothing I said would have made sense to him. It wouldn't have made sense to anyone else in the world. The only person who would have understood was dead. In eighth grade, like every single grade leading up to that year, I was unpopular. I was too fat for sports, and I had all these weird habits, little tics, that even though everyone in our town had grown used to them, kept me from getting close to anyone. I cried sometimes if people smiled at me too long. I grunted a lot when I was reading to myself. I was an island, but not far enough away from this huge body of land that was the rest of my town, so I could easily feel the separation. 
Since I was about eight or nine, I'd been updating and revising this card game I'd invented called Death Cards. It was this big stack of index cards, and most of the cards had interesting life events, like graduating high school, or winning an astronaut scholarship, or having sex for the first time. But there were also death cards that featured people dying in horrific, graphic ways. Nobody would play the game with me, so I just played against myself. By eighth grade, there were more than 400 cards in the game. I couldn't stop playing, finding my way to whatever kind of life I could have before I died violently. And whatever, but it was clear to most kids that I was effeminate, too sensitive, which suggested something was deficient in my makeup. And Mr. Reynolds was famously weird. He lived with his mother, He'd been in Vietnam, which wasn't weird, really, but there was a long-standing story that one time a car in the school parking lot had backfired and Mr. Reynolds had immediately sprawled on the floor, his face radiating panic, and the principal had to come convince him to get back up and keep teaching. My cousin, who was eight years older than me, said he'd been in the class when it happened, but he was such a fucking liar, so who knew? Mr. Reynolds was very shy and quiet, and students often talked over him when he was teaching. He drove this tiny little foreign car, and the driver's side door was a completely different color from the rest of the car, and he duct taped the rear bumper, but sometimes it would loosen and drag across the asphalt parking lot. Every day, he wore short sleeve shirts, weird plaid, and olive green chinos, and ugly brown loafers. He was freakishly tall, which seemed to embarrass him, and he didn't take advantage of it at all to make himself seem imposing. He just looked stretched out like a cartoon character. But I liked listening to him, the way he talked about this kind of bird where the babies fight each other to the death in order to be the one who gets the food from the mother. Or um, one time he brought in this weird slug and told us about how its mouth was like sandpaper and it could tear out the eyes of a baby bird or something like that. He talked about egg wars where different bird species tried to fuck each other over. <laughs> Maybe eighth grade was the bird year, or maybe Mr. Reynolds just really loved birds, but he seemed embarrassed by the sections that talked about human biology, our own weird bodies, and so he focused on animals, the natural world, the horrific shit that all living things did just to keep themselves alive. I made straight A's in his class, sometimes even drew pictures of dead animals to support my short essay answers, and he would mark each one with a very detailed drawing of a thumbs-up symbol. Good job, he'd whisper to me as he passed by my desk, handing back tests. He would stoop down and gently place the test right in front of me, and I'd feel dizzy a little. His class preceded the pep rallies or assemblies that happened every Thursday afternoon, and he said that if I wanted, I could stay in his classroom, that I had permission to skip the pep rally. I thought maybe he'd heard about the fact that in seventh grade someone tripped me, or probably I just tripped on my own, and I fell down the bleachers and fractured my wrist. But I was happy for the respite. He'd pull out weird taxidermy from the cabinets in his classroom, rodents and reptiles that looked so shabby that I wanted to set them on fire. I asked if he made them, and he said he bought them out of a catalog. I had high hopes for myself when I started teaching, he told me, his voice so soft and deep at the same time. He never had stubble. It was the smoothest face I had ever seen. 
I knew I wasn't an academic, he continued, and I wouldn't be a scientist or anything like that. I barely passed college, but I thought I'd be a good teacher. You are a good teacher, I told him. I don't think I am, he said. You're my favorite teacher, I said. He just smiled and then showed me some bones that he said he thought were raccoons. There were these girls in my class, badasses, and they played basketball and dipped and wore these huge earrings that looked painful as shit. And they burned Mr. Reynolds alive if he ever gave them an opening. They talked about his car, how ugly it was, how slow it was. They said sometimes they saw it parked in front of their houses and they figured he was spying on them, trying to see them naked. They said he looked like a giraffe. <laughs> Come on now, he'd say, getting flustered. If I'd had a gun, if I knew how to get a gun, I would have murdered everyone in that classroom. I guess he'd been a pretty great basketball player in high school, had led the team to its state championship, but the girls asserted that he couldn't keep up with them. They talked about this all the time, how they'd wear his ass out on the court, and he'd shake his head and talk about how sharp an eagle's talons were, the violence they could do to a human body. Pretty soon I started eating lunch in Mr. Reynolds' classroom. I'd sit at my desk and he'd sit at his and we'd eat in silence, me chewing on some rubbery ham sandwich. He always brought a thermos of soup and a package of peanut butter crackers. Afterward, he'd drop an Alka-Seltzer into a cup and drink that because he said his stomach wasn't great. I asked him about his car and he chuckled. The kids hate that car, don't they? He said, why don't you get a new one, I said. Well, they cost a lot of money, he said, and I like that car. It's kind of a science project, I guess, just seeing how long I can keep it running. <laughs> I kind of understood him, and then he said, this might help you, Patrick. If people think you are strange, different, they can be cruel. They look for instability and opening. My car, it's not me, is it? It's just this piece of metal that I drive to work every day. But people can look at it and laugh, and they think it hurts me, but it doesn't because it's not me. If you give people something easy, they'll take it. And sometimes that's all they need. I thought about how there were so many other things about Mr. Reynolds that the kids made fun of, but I still knew what he meant. I reached into my backpack and pulled out my huge bricks of index cards. Now what is this, he asked, curious. Death cards, I told him. Is this maybe your thing, he asked, a little smile on his face. I think it could be, I said. I showed him how it worked. There were four stacks, childhood, young adult, adulthood, old age. For each stack, there were life events with death cards mixed in. The object was to draw four cards from each stack without getting a death card. If you got a death card during young adult, then you looked at the life events up to that point, and that was the sum total of your life. What happens if you make it all the way through the game without getting a death card, he asked. I couldn't believe he was taking it seriously. I was shaking a little. Um, you die, but you die in your sleep, I told him, peacefully. <laughs> he seemed to like that possibility. And so we played. Uh, Mr. Reynolds won a spelling bee and escaped from a kidnapper and rescued a puppy and got a dirt bike for Christmas. An amazing childhood. He made it all the way to his second card of adulthood before a business rival poisoned him. This seemed to please him. This is a good game, he said. I play it all the time, I told him. 
He reached into his desk and pulled out a blank index card. He drew a sketch of a man, a cartoony version of himself, standing in front of a chalkboard. He wrote, become a junior high science teacher at the top, and then he slipped it into the middle of the adulthood deck. I hope I never get that one, he said. <laughs> Maybe that's like your own secret death card, I said, and this made him smile and turn a brighter shade of red. In the section on evolution, things got a little weird. Our town wasn't that far away from where the Scopes trial had been, which always embarrassed me. Mr. Reynolds outlined the details of evolution, how it worked. Kima Walker, one of the most beautiful girls in the school, said softly, kind of sad, I know that I did not come from some monkey, and I waited for Mr. Reynolds to destroy her. My parents both worked factory jobs. My mom had dropped out of high school and my dad never went to college, but they were smart people. They told me about evolution when I was so little and they told it to me with such happiness. I think they liked the idea that you could be something but turn into something else. Around that same time, I asked them about the Bible and my mom just shrugged. Just stories, she said. Do you think we evolved from monkeys? Jeff Jeffcoat asked Mr. Reynolds who seemed to think about it. Well, he said softly, uh, evolution takes place over thousands of years, these slow incremental changes. For us to evolve from monkeys, the world would have to be much older than we suspect that it is. So I'm not so sure that evolution is fully proven. There are certainly verifiable instances of it, but I think it requires more analysis, maybe more than we can do in the lifespan of human beings. I felt like someone had punched me in the stomach. Kima Walker looked so happy. The whole class seemed to take Mr. Reynolds and place him in a better part of their consciousness. The rest of the class that day went so smoothly, I barely listened. I took out an index card and drew a picture of a gorilla stabbing a human being with a huge spear, and I wrote, mishap at the zoo at the top. My disappointment with Mr. Reynolds and the other students' truce with him ended a week later when Marigold Timmons, who played power forward on the girls' basketball team, told Mr. Reynolds, after she'd made a D on a quiz, that she could destroy him in a game of one-on-one. -on -one. Mr. Reynolds had been writing some notes on the chalkboard, and I watched his body stiffen, his hand just hovering there. You think you could beat me? He asked, and it looked like he was talking to the chalkboard, about to fight it. I could, she said. Mr. Reynolds turned around, how much you want to bet? And the class went, ooh. And Marigold said, $20. Let me see the $20, he said. And Marigold said, let me see if you have $20. And the class went, ooh, again. Mr. Reynolds reached into his wallet, fucking Velcro, and slammed a 20 on the desk. Marigold reached into her purse and counted out ten ones and a five. That's all I have, she said. And Mr. Reynolds said, that was just fine. Patrick, he said, and I got scared. You hold the money. And so I got up and waddled around the room to get the money. Let's go, Mr. Reynolds said. And he walked into the hallway. It took a few seconds, some giggling, but soon we all followed him down the hall, out of the main building, and into the gym. The gym teacher, Coach Billings, seemed perturbed to have us in there. His class was playing badminton on one half of the gym. Franklin, he asked Mr. Reynolds, you doing a science project in here or something? Jimmy, I need to use that half of the court for a demonstration. It's all about, he paused, trying to think of something, physics and whatnot. Mr. Reynolds went to get a basketball and Marigold was stretching. 
Uh, can't have those shoes on the court, Franklin, Coach Billings said apologetically. And Mr. Reynolds just kicked off his loafers, peeled off his socks, and walked onto the court. We'll play to five, he said. One point per basket. Make it, take it. I know for a fact, 100%, that I was the only person in that gym who wanted Mr. Reynolds to win. Marigold's boyfriend had called me a queer one day when he saw that I had a handkerchief that had little red roses embroidered on it. So Marigold took the ball from Mr. Reynolds and started dribbling to her right, looking to blow past Mr. Reynolds, but he stayed with her. And when she went for a layup, he swatted it away so easily that the whole class seemed to groan at the same time. In his bare feet, toes as long as fingers, he ran down the bouncing ball and immediately put up a weird set shot that came from his hip, and he buried it easily. One zero, he said, and Marigold looked puffy and angry. Mr. Reynolds scored three points as easily as possible, even hitting a skyhook over Marigold's ineffective defense. When he got the ball back, Marigold dug in, scuffed her sneakers on the squeaky floor, and Mr. Reynolds faked a shot. In that second, he dribbled past her, wide open, and he leapt into the air. It looked like he was going to dunk it, but he just didn't quite have the height, so he bounced it off the backboard at the last second, and the shot fell through. The class hooted and hollered, and Marigold was crying. Mr. Reynolds came over to me, and I handed him the money, and he put it in his wallet. I could not believe that he was taking Marigold's money. I thought that would be illegal. Mr. Reynolds calmly put on his socks and loafers, and we all marched back into our classroom and sat in silence until the bell rang a few minutes later. That was amazing, I told him, the last one out the door. I've not been that scared in a long time, he said, huffing a little, his teeth chattering. I thought about what kind of lifeguard that would be, but it seemed too complicated, too much text to write to explain it. We were playing death cards in his classroom one day during lunch, and I made it all the way through the game without drawing a death card. Mr. Reynolds had fallen into a pool and drowned as a child, but he seemed happy to watch me accumulate experiences on my way to a quiet death. When I was done, I shuffled the cards again, but Mr. Reynolds said, not a bad life. I didn't have sex, though, I said. There were sex cards interspersed through the decks, though the pictures I drew were just fancy hearts. It isn't necessary for a good life, he said. I felt like we were friends, and I wondered if Mr. Reynolds had any other friends. I knew that I didn't. Have you ever had sex, I asked. And he blushed, but he didn't seem angry with me. Yeah, he said finally. In Vietnam, it was awful. It, it was, I asked, and he nodded. It was kind of like a payment situation, he said. All the guys did it, and they really wouldn't leave me alone until I did it, too. I hated it so much. But never again, I asked, feeling so sad. Nope, he said. Never came up again. Never went looking for it again. Never felt like I needed it. And you feel like you've had a good life without it, I asked. I, I needed to know what my life could be like. I haven't had a good life, he said looking right at me, his eyes kind of watery. But it wasn't because of sex. It's like your card game, Patrick. You just pick cards and you can't really control it. But you only get to play the game once, I said. Yeah, he said, that's true. Maybe that's why we like this game, I offered. Maybe, he replied. Do you believe in heaven, I asked. 
It doesn't seem scientifically possible, he said. I don't even know if I'd want there to be one. Whoever made earth made heaven too, right? So who's to say that heaven would be any better? He seemed not even to register that I was even there, that I had a body and was right next to him. He seemed like he was staring into some black hole. I reached over and I touched his hand. You're a great teacher, Franklin, I said. He smiled. Thanks, Patrick. The next part of the story, I don't even want to tell it. It's not the important thing, but it's necessary. Letitia Gordon, who was the star player on the girls' basketball team, a point guard who could score in waves, was impossible to shake off when she played defense, could dribble like a playground legend, challenged Mr. Reynolds to another game of one-on-one -on -one for 20 bucks. And Mr. Reynolds said no. Letitia wasn't even in our class. She had study hall that period and just came in because she was friends with Marigold. I imagine they had been planning this for weeks and weeks. Finally, Mr. Reynolds said, okay, and I gathered up the money and we all marched into the gym. And Letitia scored two quick baskets, but then Mr. Reynolds came back with two of his own. And then he went up for a layup and came down weird and his ankle just snapped. He didn't even make a noise in reaction. We heard that snapping sound like a tree branch breaking off. And then it was just silence. And then we all saw Mr. Reynolds' ankle turned the absolute wrong way, and he was holding his leg with both hands, kind of elevating it. And then kids started screaming so loud, so sustained. And one boy threw up in the bleachers, this soup vomit running down and dripping into the wooden floor under the bleachers. Letitia didn't even look at Mr. Reynolds, just jogged out of the gym, afraid of getting into trouble. I wanted to run to Mr. Reynolds to hold him, but I was paralyzed. Mr. Reynolds had drawn a death card, such a bad one, at just the wrong time. The money was in my hands, getting sweaty and warm, and I ripped it up into tiny little pieces and I threw it down, and a few pieces fluttered around and got stuck in the vomit. Coach Billings finally went over to Mr. Reynolds, and then an ambulance came, and they carried him out of the gym, and the principal was standing there looking so confused and so angry. And Marigold was trying to explain what had happened. The bell rang for the next class, and I still didn't move. I just sat in the bleachers, and I stayed there the rest of the day. And I was just so invisible in that school that no one even noticed. I just sat in the bleachers and cried. That night, back at home, I drew about 40 new death cards, just awful, awful scenarios. I surprised even myself. I didn't put them into the decks. I just made a single deck, all on its own, and I turned them over, one after the other. Nothing but death, nothing but humiliation. I did that all night. I didn't even sleep. And when I went back to school the next morning, Mr. Reynolds wasn't there, and this old lady was our substitute. When we asked about Mr. Reynolds, she said he was on medical leave and would be gone for the rest of the year. Was he fired? Marigold asked, and she seemed sheepish, a little guilty. Oh, heavens no, the woman said. He'll be back next year. I found Mr. Reynolds' address in the phone book, and on Saturday I rode my bike the nearly six miles to his house, my body covered in sweat, even though it was still cold out the last bit of winter. My thighs hurt so bad and my stomach was cramping. The bike was something I'd outgrown and then shown so little interest in that my parents never bought me a new one. But I made it to Mr. Reynolds' house, his car parked in the driveway, and there was no going back now. 
His mom answered the door, ancient but surprisingly sturdy, really tall, even though she was hunched over from age. She had been a teacher at the same middle school, English, but that was way before my time. My mom didn't even remember her. Yes, she asked, a little afraid of this fat kid with long eyelashes. I wondered if anyone besides the two of them had been in the house in years. Uh, is Mr. Reynolds here? I asked. I reached into my backpack and showed her a box of Russell Stover chocolates that I bought with my allowance. I, I have a get well present for him. Oh, how sweet, she said. She turned around and walked back to her recliner and picked up this big book, which I remember was a biography of Sammy Davis Jr. and simply said, he's in his room at the end of the hall. The house smelled clean like lemon and everything was in its proper place. I had imagined mold and cat piss and mounted deer heads everywhere, but this was an ordinary house, a little nicer actually than the house I shared with my parents and younger sister. I knocked on the door and Mr. Reynolds said, mom? It's Patrick, I said. There was a long pause, and then he finally said, Okay, come in. He was sitting up in his bed, a mystery novel on his lap. There was a big desk in the room that had all these science books neatly arranged on it, lots of notes. He had a framed, signed poster of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on his wall and some Audubon prints that were really beautiful and looked expensive. On the nightstand was a plate with peanut butter crackers and a glass of tomato juice. Patrick, he said, what are you doing here? He seemed embarrassed to see me. He was wearing old-fashioned pajamas and a knit cap for the cold. I brought you this, I said, handing him the chocolates. Oh, that's really nice of you, he said. He looked at me for a second, then back at the chocolates. Would you like to eat some? He asked, and I nodded. He ripped off the plastic film, and we each ate about four chocolates, chewing the nougat in silence. Are you okay? I asked. I will be in a while, he said. No permanent damage, surprisingly enough. The doctor says the bone will actually be stronger at the break than it was before once it heals. I tried to look at his legs, but they were under the blankets. And you're not in trouble? I asked, and he blushed. The principal says I can't play basketball against my students for money. <laughs> he paused, thinking about things. I can't play basketball with them, even not for money, he then said. And I'm on a kind of probationary period, but no, not really. It's hard to get fired, I think. That's good, I told him. I miss you in class. Well, I miss you too, he said. And then I just started weeping. I don't even know why, but the sight of him there broken, so accepting of his sad life, it made me want to die. Patrick, he said, reaching out for me. He touched my face, which made me feel better. I don't know what to do, I said, hiccuping. I'm a freak. I hate my life. You are not a freak. I'm gay, I think, I told him, the first time I told anyone. But I don't even know if I'm gay, really. How would I know? There are only about three other boys in the school who are gay, and I don't even know if they know they're gay, and I'm just stuck here. If you're gay, Mr. Reynolds said, it's not a bad thing. Okay, Patrick, it's not. And then I looked up at him, still crying. Are you gay? I asked. He looked pained, but seemed to consider the question. I don't think so, he finally said. At one point, I might have been, but I kind of missed that window. 
I don't think I'm anything, Patrick. Could I kiss you? I asked, fumbling for something, trying to figure my way into my own life. No, he said. You do not want your first kiss to be with me. It will be something you think about every single time you kiss another person. Please, Franklin, I asked. Was this the reason that I'd even come here? I had no idea. I didn't know exactly what I was doing or saying. Life does not always have to be bad, Patrick, but maybe right now it has to be for you. But get out of here. Go to college, a college in a big city or with a a lot of students, and then maybe you can figure this out. Maybe you can find happiness. But maybe I never will, I said. Maybe this is it. Maybe, he admitted. But just try, okay? Just try. I sniffled, trying to gain some composure. Okay, I told him, and he smiled. Do you want another chocolate, he asked me. But I said I thought my stomach was hurting. He put the chocolates away and regarded me with tenderness. Did you bring your death cards? He asked, and I nodded because I never went anywhere without them. <laughs> I reached into my backpack and produced the stacks held together with rubber bands. Could we try something? He asked me. He took the first stack of cards and he went through them, removing every single death card from the deck. He took the next stack and did the same. And I took a stack and removed the death cards. I finished removing all the death cards from the last stack and we stared at them spread out over the quilt on his bed. There are so many ways to die, I realized. So many ways that things would just stop and never start again. Then Mr. Reynolds drew a card and he held it up for me and it made me smile. He had won a baby beauty pageant. And then I drew, and then he did. And we did that all afternoon without the possibility of death, an entire life, and then a life stacked on top of that, and then another life stacked on top of that until there was nothing but life, always happening, never stopping. And I held his hand at one point and I thanked him again and he just nodded. I never saw him again after that. I moved to the high school the next year, and I nearly killed myself. But I held on to that part of me that I wanted to keep, and I made it out of that place, which wasn't even really a bad place or no worse than any other place for someone like me, and I got to somewhere good. I didn't evolve, nothing like that. I just held on to myself and found a place where I could keep living. And eventually I stopped thinking so much about Mr. Reynolds because thinking about him meant thinking about that time in my life. And he just sat there in this tiny little part of my heart. And he never changed either. And now he was dead. And there was no way that I could explain it to my boyfriend. He would not know how those cards worked, the sensation of drawing them, each time wondering what awful thing might appear and how much of a relief it was, even if it was ordinary, that you were still here, still in this world.
That was Biology by Kevin Wilson, performed by Mike Doyle. Both of these stories are about adolescents seeking some kind of stability. But there's another interesting thread here. Each protagonist, in his own way, rescues some part of a difficult or stolen past and creates a path toward a more hopeful future. May all of you make this kind of progress in your moments of quiet reflection. This has been our celebration of the best American short stories of 2021. I'm Jane Kesmerick. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Jenny Falcon and Sarah Montague. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchett Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achilles and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Consolidated Edison Company of New York, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodsons Fund. Selected Shirts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.